Hello once again and welcome back to Principles of Environmental Toxicology. My name is Professor Greg Muller and I'm the instructor for the course. Well, today's lecture is going to be a special topics lecture. In this special topics lecture, we're going to have two subjects, uh, selenium ecotoxicology and arsenic in drinking water. And one of the first things students in this course ought to do is go review a periodic table just to kind of locate these very special elements on the periodic table in group five and group six and look at the periodic table and the periodicity properties of these elements. One of the properties uh, that you should notice is they appear directly between, uh, underneath two very important biological elements, the element of phosphorus and the element of sulfur. Both phosphorus and sulfur are important in many biomolecules and this, in fact, is one of the reasons why selenium and arsenic have significant problems in terms of human toxicosis as well as ecotoxicology. Now, when we focus on ecotoxicology of selenium, we're going to do this because uh, this is where the primary uh, concerns are in terms of selenium and selenium's potential for biomagnification in impacted environments. Selenium does have, have human health consequences. It is a required trace element. As you saw in our oxidative stress discussion, it is an important element in the selenium glutathione peroxidase antioxidant enzyme system. It keeps resp respiratory processes from going out of control in terms of free radical formation. Arsenic in drinking water, again, is a problem that can have human health impacts, and that's what we're going to focus on today, arsenic in drinking water, but there can also be biological impacts and pharmacological impacts because arsenic is actually still used in some medicines. It's still used in agricultural treatment, for instance, in chicken production uh, as a, uh, an antiprotozole. Uh, Rocks arsone is the compound. But we are going to focus on, in terms of our special topics lecture, on selenium ecotoxicology and arsenic in drinking water. Our learning objectives, what we'd like you to have to do here is examine the chemistry of selenium in inorganic and organic molecules. Just like sulfur that appears above it in the periodic table, we can have inorganic forms of selenium and organic forms. And so this actually is way we can kind of start focusing on concepts that we talked about in our risk assessment lectures about things like bioavailability, species-specific impacts. This is when, for example, if we're doing environmental monitoring, that determining the total concentration of selenium may not be sufficient in terms of determining the relative risk of an impacted environment. We're going to try to have you understand the role of selenoamino acids. There are sulfur-bearing amino acids, okay? When we have too much selenium in a biological pathway, we can have selenium amino acids formed in excess. These are normal and natural in our bodies, but we can have too much of a natural byproduct. Uh, we can actually see this progress to selenium toxicity in both plant and animal systems. We're going to try as well to have you examine chronic selenium toxicosis, or selenosis as it's referred to. Uh, this happens uh, in wildlife. It happens in livestock. Uh, there is anecdotal evidence that the horses of Marco Polo in his adventures uh, in global exploration uh, hundreds, uh, thousands of years ago uh, actually 
their livestock experienced selenosis. Uh, selenosis happens uh, in terms of naturally occurring selenium in wild environments. Uh, so there are, for example, areas uh, that have too much selenium, like South Dakota and parts of South Dakota in the United States. And there are other places, like in the peaks of the Rocky Mountains, where there is insufficient uh, deficiency of selenium. As a required trace element for aerobes, uh, this can present a nutritional efficiency problem. We'll try to, uh, as well, understand a little bit about the pathways, uh, the role of selenium, if you will, in reproductive failure, one of the uh, highest uh, uh, concern endpoints in terms of selenium toxicity. We're going to try to put the uh, aspects, toxicological aspects of selenium uh, into play with its biogeochemical cycle. Uh, if you recall uh, from any sort of your discussions or understanding of environmental science on biogeochemical cycles, the sulfur cycle, uh, where we have volatilized uh, sulfur, sometimes from coal uh, combustion, sometimes from natural processes. Uh, many of us have uh, been around uh, volcanic waters or hot springs that smell of sulfur. But there is a natural cycling in the environment. In fact, what we find is that selenium and sulfur share this same biogeochemical cycle. Uh, as it turns out, living organisms can accumulate selenium selectively because in a typical fashion, it's uh, less than a 1,000 in terms of a ratio of selenium to uh, uh, sulfur in the environment. And so it's, it's more of a trace uh, element uh, as opposed to a macro element like sulfur in our natural environment. We're going to try to uh, analyze some environmental selenium case studies, uh, some of the literature uh, that gave us uh, the environmental concern that we have right now and some of the regulatory standards. We'll try to examine some of the regulatory and scientific issues. These issues uh, are occurring and being discussed uh, actually uh, currently. Uh, I know of a conference uh, in two weeks in Montreal, Canada, dealing with the risk analysis of selenium in the environment, and specifically in this particular case, selenium from industrial activities such as mining. We'll then switch gears and focus on the occurrence of arsenic in drinking water. How do we manage a maximum contaminant level? A maximum contaminant level in drinking water is established based on risk analysis. In risk analysis, because we are dealing with a human population, we draw up models and we do the best case we can in terms of projecting relative risks. We try to balance that against things like best available technologies in terms of treating the water and as well the economic uh, benefits, the gain-loss uh, ratio in terms of ma managing arsenic-contaminated uh, drinking waters. We'll just try and describe what's gone on a little bit in the past uh, five or six years in terms of the U.S. arsenic regulatory changes. Uh, we have gone through a significant amount of uh, regulatory introspection when it comes to arsenic, a call for data, a tremendous amount of uh, research has, has uh, actually given us a regulatory change as of 2001. This needs to be, uh, in terms of drinking water systems, they need to be in compliance by 2006, and we'll update you on where that process is. We'll also try to describe the clinical pathology of arsenicosis. Again, this is the disease manifestation of arsenic toxicity. We'll try and we'll have you examine arsenic in drinking water and the public health emergency 
that currently exists in the country of Bangladesh. Uh, this is something that uh, uh, has been a, a crisis of global proportions in terms of the number of individuals impacted. We'll give you a little bit of the history, perhaps uh, a human focus, a uh, human point of view in terms of the devastating impacts of arsenicosis in this population. Well, let's talk about environmental selenium. Again, I introduce this as a sulfur analog because it sits right below sulfur on the periodic table. Uh, when you are in the same group of the periodic table, you have similar sort of bonding capacities. Selenium is a non-metal, uh, and it behaves such. Uh, we can form not only uh, selenium, organoselenium molecules, but we can also have the oxyanions of selenium, sulfate and uh, uh, selenate, uh, sulfite and selenite, uh, in terms of their analogs. In terms of reduced species, uh, we can have sulfides. Uh, these are the, the compounds uh, that give us uh, the smell in rotten eggs, uh, the smell even uh, in our uh, uh, gas, natural gas in our stoves at home. We use methylmercaptans, uh, very stinky compounds, if you will, and uh, to give natural gas an odor, an undesirable odor, such that uh, if we leave the gas on unlit, uh, we know about it just because of the stink. Like sulfur, and, and many of us have seen pictures or actually seen in laboratories, elemental yellow elemental sulfur, uh, selenium, uh, selenium zero uh, can also exist as a zero valent form. Selenium zero uh, can exist as red selenium or as gray selenium. We also find this incorporated into organic compounds, and pretty much uh, what I'll go ahead and say is that wherever you find a sulfur organo compound, you can find a selenium organic compound. Uh, as I introduced, it's an essential trace element. Uh, it's toxic at higher concentrations. And this graphic here gives you an idea of just what you should understand about selenium. If this is a, a dose response curve, here's your dose and here's a response. If, in fact, we don't have a response as a toxicant effect, but as a positive effect. And so this is a nutritional deficiency situation. As you're increasing dose, you see a positive effect in terms of the health of the animal. But at some fundamental concentration, you maximize any positive effects. And then you start decreasing those positive effects as the dose gets higher. If we were to graph this in terms of dose response, where a toxic end effect was the, uh, the response, uh, you would see this same sort of dose response sigmoidal curve looking at toxic end effects as you increase dose. This sort of relationship is actually very typical of nutritionally required compounds. So call them vitamins, call them essential trace elements. Typically what we find is that these compounds, which often have facilitated absorption, such as manganese uh, from our diet, zinc is our diet. There are protein carriers that assist in maintaining what's referred to as homeostasis, uh, a balance of this. If we are in deficiency, it, we get a higher efficiency absorption. Uh, this is typical, again, for required trace elements and required uh, molecules of life in terms of biomolecule synthesis. Uh, what we find, though, in, in looking at selenium is that the homeostasis or the control mechanism in terms of how much is needed is uh, pretty much been diluted or it has poor control overall. And so we do have the ability of selenium to saturate the sulfur biosynthesis pathways of sulfur biomolecules. 
The forms of selenium are important because this gives us a sense of the uh, biochemical and biogeochemical diversity out in nature. We have selenides, and this is a minus two oxidation state. We find these in reducing environments, the smelly uh, environments. Uh, in muds uh, and in uh, waters that are poorly oxygenated. Um, this compound uh, or this uh, chemical, this form of selenium, can form very uh, strong metal complex. These are highly insoluble. This is very similar to reduced sulfur. Uh, for example, lead salts forming lead sulfides or uh, galena, as the mineral form is called. We can have uh, organoselenium compounds like dimethylselenide, this is actually a, a volatilization byproduct uh, from various soil bacteria and fungi. Uh, scientists think that this is a detoxification pathway. In high selenium environments, sometimes if you're walking around, you can actually smell these uh, methyl selenides. Uh, they smell a little bit like garlic. They have an off smell to them. Uh, and this has a lot to do with the fact that the soil microbes, the plants, are trying to detoxify. And again, one of the ways to do that is to produce these volatile compounds. There can also be dimethyl diselenide, another volatilization product from plants. Uh, dimethyl selenone, another volatile metabolite. And then hydrogen uh, selenide, H2SE, uh, which has uh, actually been produced in some cases by uh, bacteria as well. One of the ways that we find uh, selenium presented in biological systems in terms of biosynthesis is in the form of selenoamino acids. The selenoamino acids, the major ones, selenomethionine, uh, SE-met, selenocysteine, SE-cis, selenomethyl selenocysteine, and selenol. Uh, cystathionone uh, are some of these selenoamino acids. And so what these are are selenium analogs of sulfur-bearing amino acids, okay? And so again, the point I want to make is that when we have too much selenium in the diet, too much selenium exposure, our biosynthesis pathways are a little bit dumb in this regard, and we'll end up synthesizing some of these. But the other aspect of it is sometimes our diets will, in fact, um, have uh, selenomethionine, selenocysteine in them because of the types of food we eat. Selenium is very commonly a uh, nutritional trace element that is supplemented to livestock. Uh, remembering that livestock are confined animals, uh, we have to feed them their vitamin pill, if you will. Selenium is a part of this vitamin pill. It's, in, it's linked to, to not only to its antioxidant properties, but there's immune function and reproductive function. And so there needs to be sufficient amounts of selenium in their diet. As it turns out, in our diet, uh, we get quite a bit of selenium from uh, consumption of meat, especially meat uh, that is grown uh, in uh, production livestock operations, and also in various uh, vegetable and plant products. Not a lot, but there are some, and it also depends a lot where those plants are grown. If it's grown in a selenium deficient area, those feedstuffs will have low amounts of selenium. One of the major forms of selenium in the environment is elemental selenium. Um, you can see it in this petri dish. This is red selenium. This is a selenium reducing bacteria culture. And so you can see that, in fact, it does take the oxyanion, selenate, and selenite and can reduce it down to zero valent selenium, which gives it this red color. These same biogeochemical processes, microbial 
microbially mediated uh, are responsible as well for the production of zero valence sulfur. Uh, it's stable in uh, reducing environments. It has a pretty slow oxidation. Uh, it is unstable uh, in oxidized environments. And so as you dig it up, as you uh, infiltrate oxygenated water, you can create these seleno-oxidation states. Uh, the selen selenium-4 and the selenium-6 uh, typically as oxyanion selenite and selenate which are water-soluble and therefore can present a mobilization of this element in the environment. We have selenite, and again, this is selenium-4. Uh, it's an oxyanion, SeO3-2-. Uh, this is a soluble form. It's uh, less mobile in the environment. It does bind to some iron minerals, although it, it, uh, it, it can be mobilized. Uh, trimethylselenonium uh, is an important urinary metabolite. So in terms of our, uh, if we have a diet uh, that consists of Brazil nuts, which are very high in selenium, uh, we will be producing these urinary metabolites, trimethylselenonium. We have selenous acid, uh, which is common in soils, but this is the uh, selenium-6 oxidation state, or I'm sorry, the, the hydrogenated form, which is common in soils. And we have selenium dioxide, uh, SeO2, which we can find just like we have sulfur dioxide formed in the combustion of fossil fuels. The other oxyanion is selenate, and this is the most important and predominant uh, oxidation state in the environment. Uh, it's, again, an oxyanion, SeO4-2-. Uh, it's stable, and it's very mobile. Uh, this is similar to sulfate. Uh, sulfate salts are pretty soluble uh, in water. And so we do find uh, selenate, uh, selenate being the oxidation state uh, and the uh, predominant component in most uh, surface waters and surface soils. Uh, we also can find hydrogenated forms, again, pH modulated uh, in soil. Well, in terms of mobilization, uh, in terms of uh, what we do, what natural processes happen in the environment, in terms of erosion processes, precipitation processes, as well as anthropogenic processes, when we dig a uh, turn a shovel of soil, we have the ability to release uh, uh, various uh, soil uh, substrates into the local environment, and those can be mobilized typically by air or water. In the atmosphere, we have deposition to a marine system from volatile forms. Again, the biogeochemical cycle of sulfur is a good analog. We can have the potential deposition to terrestrial systems, atmospheric deposition. In marine systems, we can have volatilization, uh, remembering that sea salts do contain uh, a high load of sulfate salts as well. People think of it totally as sodium chloride. This is a false assumption. Uh, there can be marine biota uptake and sediment deposition to land. It's very interesting that when we find large-scale deposits of selenium, uh, quite often these are in ancient sedimentary formations. What used to be a very active uh, marine area quite often, or a bog, uh, where we have tremendous amounts of kerogenic or uh, petroleum hydrocarbon materials and sedimentary formations from uh, uh, fossil fuels, we can also find selenium because organisms bioaccumulate and bioconcentrate selenium from the environment. When these organisms die, there is a more concentrated local resource, uh, especially in a highly productive biological area. 
In ter terrestrial processes, we can find uh, selenium being mobilized by volatilization, uh, by dust particles, and by uh, dissolved uh, substrates like selenate and selenite, uh, and particulates uh, in terms of uh, water. In terms of anthropogenic properties, uh, we actually get uh, mobilization of selenium from uh, mining, uh, from petroleum production, and from uh, agricultural irrigation waters. When we take saline waters, like in the California Central Valley, and we'll talk about some case studies there, and we bring those to the surface, the California Central Valley is a 50 million year old marine basin. All of the Central Valley used to be an inlet, a very large marine inlet. Uh, over geological time, uh, that inlet dried up, and the deposition of the sea salts has created some groundwater there that is highly saline. As you use this irrigation water, you have the potential to enhance and increase the salinity of the agriculture, the very fertile agricultural ground that is in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Valley. And this has been the cause of some selenium-based problems in the past two decades. Well, in terms of background, if we were to take a look at terrestrial uh, sources of selenium, the Earth's crust, uh, and this is in parts per million or milligrams per kilogram, uh, the Earth's crust is about uh, 0.09. Uh, limestone resources a little bit enhanced, 0.1 uh, to 0.14 uh, part per million. You'll notice that shales and phosphate rock, these are sedimentary formations. Um, and we'll talk about a case study dealing with phosphate mining here in the state of Idaho. But uh, you can see that we can have enhanced concentrations uh, up to 50 parts per million. Uh, in crude oil, uh, we find uh, a background, a natural background of selenium. Uh, we find it in coal. Uh, you're probably aware that some coal has high sulfur in it and therefore presents a risk in terms of the presentation of sulfur dioxides, uh, sulfuric acid in terms of the interaction of these sulfur dioxides with rainwater and acid rain production. Those same sorts of chemical, biogeochemical processes uh, can happen with coal that contains selenium, albeit to a thousandfold less in terms of its uh, relative concentration. In soils, we can find in non-seleniferous soils uh, uh, typically maximize maximum concentrations of about one or two part per million. But in seleniferous soils, like some of the uh, areas in South Dakota, we can find soils uh, that are as high as 200 parts per million. When we have plants growing on this, these uh, plants can hyperaccumulate selenium and actually present a potential for toxicosis to grazing animals. And there have been historical observations of selenosis for hundreds of years. In aquatic ecosystems, uh, these are the major focus area in terms of selenium ecotoxicology. Uh, in ocean water, this is a saline body. We find natural background of selenium to be, and this is in parts per million as well, 10 to the minus 4 to 10 to the minus 3 in terms of range. Uh, river waters on the order more likely of 10 to the minus 4. So we're in the part per billion or sub part per billion range right there, about a half of a part per billion in terms of natural background, okay? So rainwater does contain, river water, ocean water does contain background selenium. And these are averages. 
Aquatic plants, again, can accumulate uh, this material, but typically this accumulation is less than a part per million. Uh, if you go on up the food chain, uh, plankton uh, can uh, uh, demonstrate levels of one to two parts per million. And fish, in terms of its natural background, remember as a, a required trace element, animals have a responsibility, if you will, uh, a biological need to accumulate a level for uh, enzyme uh, biosynthesis, uh, for respiratory processes, antioxidant, and the very types of selenoproteins that provide uh, different types of roles in terms of our biochemistry. But in fish, we find in terms of background concentrations in fish tissue, a half a part per million to about six and a half parts per million. Now, in terms of, I said, aquatic ecosystems are uh, a point problem in terms of selenium, and this has to do with concentrations that are higher than background. We have developed in the United States an aquatic biota criteria of five parts per billion, 0 0.005 milligrams per liter. We'll talk about some of the studies that led to that development. There are proposals out there to lower this. Uh, in fact, uh, there are some proposals that uh, want to lower this to below a part per billion. The drinking water maximum contaminant level uh, is 50 micrograms per liter or 50 parts per billion. And so there is a, a difference there in terms of aquatic ecosystem, aquatic ecotoxicology, and human health and human toxicology in terms of exposure. Uh, and the fact that, uh, to be honest, in, in uh, most assessments, uh, uh, we do a pretty good job for of uh, uh, providing selenium to the U.S. population through a healthy diet, although in developing countries and selenium-deficient areas, uh, there have been observations historically and even recently of uh, selenium deficiency occurring in various areas. In terms of the products of anthropogenic activity, petroleum products have about 0.1 to about 2 parts per million. Fly ash from coal combustion can have 1 to about 16 and a half parts per million. Uh, sewage sludge, uh, interestingly enough, uh, 1.8 to almost 2 to 5 parts per million. Now, why would there be selenium in sewage sludge, which is us, when we flush our toilets? Well, as it turns out, uh, not only in our diets and our ability to concentrate uh, selenium selenium residues in our diets, uh, as well as vitamins, uh, we also use selenium uh, in several uh, personal care products. Uh, Selsun Blue is a product that you have probably heard of. Uh, if you read the label, it is a selenium-based uh, anti-dandruff compound. And so these, uh, these type of products can add to accumulation of selenium in sewage sludge. Uh, paper products, uh, two to about 20 parts uh, per, per million. Well, one of the things uh, that we need to look at here uh, is um, selenium in its biogeochemical cycle. Just a second here. Um, and this is a very complex graphic, and what I'm going to do here is uh, give you uh, an introduction uh, to what you need to know uh, about biogeochemical cycling of selenium. And I think the best way to start is over here on this uh, side of the slide uh, where we have these heavy metal selenides, these reduced substrates. Uh, this is uh, perhaps the reservoir of materials that are in the soil that are in various rock formations, sedimentary formations. There's a slow oxidation from the uh, two minus oxidation state to zero valent elemental selenium. Sometimes this is biologically mediated. 
there can be uh, a slow oxidation to these uh, next oxidation step, which is next oxidation uh, state, which is selenium-4 selenite, uh, whereas zero-valent selenium is uh, predominantly insoluble. Uh, selenite is soluble, but it can form complexes with uh, minerals, especially iron-bearing minerals. Uh, and so these complexes are somewhat immobile and mostly insoluble. Uh, further oxidation, um, and this has a lot to do with surface uh, features in what's referred to as the Vado zone or the shallow subsurface, highly oxygenated zones of soil. Uh, the plant root zone, uh, we can have uptake of uh, selenium as selenite and selenate, uh, and there can be biosynthesis of uh, various organoselenium compounds by plants, and this allows it to be mobilized because there has the possibility at that point in time of, for example, volatilization or uh, impact of grazing animals uh, in terms of consumption of these seleniferous forages. Um, selenates uh, are highly soluble and therefore mobile, and so there is a potential for leaching and runoff. And this uh, can be via anthropogenically impacted soils, like soils that are used in farming or in mining or in uh, residential or commercial development, but it also can be just from the natural weathering cycles of rocks and minerals in terms of erosional processes on the surface of the planet. This leaching uh, allows for mobilization, but eventually this uh, solubilized selenium will become resident in ponds and deep waters and sediments, uh, and there is a potential then for it to have microbial interactions. There's a classification of bacteria called SRBs, or sulfate-reducing bacteria. They actually use sulfate and also selenate as a terminal electron acceptor in their respiratory cycle in the same way that we use oxygen as our terminal electron acceptor in our respiration. And what happens uh, when they do this respiratory cycle, it actually can produce uh, selenides and zero-valent selenium, the reduced part of the biogeochemical cycle. These are insoluble, and they start the cycle all over again. So that gives you an idea of what's happening out in the environment in terms of selenium and normal and anthropogenic impacts. Now, we have a conundrum uh, that I like to identify here in selenium, and this has a lot to do with the fact that uh, when we talk about environmental toxicology, we are used to talking about things that their primary property in terms of its relationship to biology is a toxic relationship. Selenium is different because it is an essential trace element for all aerobes. And this has a lot to do with its requirement in glutathione peroxidase uh, uh, biosynthesis. It's also required for immune function and some reproductive impacts. As I said in the introduction, we have a poor control response, and this probably has a lot to do with the similarity, the chemical similarity of selenium and sulfur. So the, the uh, transition from deficiency to normal to toxic uh, ranges, they're very close. Uh, there's a gray area between the zone. It's less controlled. There's less homeostasis uh, than some other trace elements. And so we can cross over from deficiency to toxicity in a fairly rapid fashion. And so our ability to balance that is, is perhaps uh, less than some other uh, trace elements and some other uh, uh, required trace uh, compounds like vitamins. 
Uh, it's also problematic, as I stated, because it, it can do selenium, or uh, selenium can do sulfur biochemistry in its biosynthesis, so we can have the result of selenoamino acids. Um, there are some important selenoamino acids that are required. Uh, however, uh, too many of these, and what's going to happen? The problem is going to be, when we go back to our discussion of the molecules of life and the importance of proteins and the, pro the importance of uh, tertiary and secondary structures in, in proteins. As we start having protein folding, uh, that folding quite often is mediated by the formation of disulfide bonds uh, from one sulfur-bearing amino acid across to another sulfur-bearing amino acid. These disulfide bridges uh, in this tertiary structure, uh, if we substitute in too many selenium uh, atoms in these uh, amino acids, what we find is that the disulfide bridge is no longer the same. Either it doesn't form or it forms differently. The conformation of the molecule, the conformation of the protein, which might be a hormone, an enzyme, or some other important biomolecule function protein uh, is going to be changed, and this change can have a toxic impact. If we have enough of these proteins changed, these selenoproteins uh, interrupted, so to speak, uh, it can be toxic, and it can, in fact, be lethal at high enough levels. There is a question in terms of selenium biogeochemistry in different types of aquatic ecosystems. And this is something that uh, ecologists uh, and environmental toxicologists and regulatory scientists are dealing with right now, trying to figure out what is the best approach to the regulatory science management of selenium in the environment. In lentic systems, these are ponded systems, there is a different energy dynamic. There's different turnover, different levels of oxygenation. In lotic or high-flow aquatic systems, there is a different kind of washing out, high-flow, high-oxygenation, uh, different sort of impact. There are large-scale regulatory science questions on whether or not we need to have different approaches in terms of managing potential for toxicosis in different types of environments with different types of species. There are some significant variations in species, aquatic species. Uh, typically, what we do is we develop regulations based on the most sensitive species. But in the case of selenium, we find that that is a significant in terms of variability of some snails and even some fish, especially warm water fish, which appear to be a little bit more sensitive than cold water fish, uh, like the salmonids, to selenium. There is a significant amount of scientific and regulatory science debate in the approach to managing selenium ecotoxicology. There are disagreements on impacts in different environmental systems, as I said, lentic versus lotic. Uh, there is a challenge in terms of extrapolating the observations that we have of toxicosis to these low levels. Uh, there is an interplay of this required trace element status versus toxic exposures, and especially spe species-specific and site-specific considerations. 
And there is, it comes and presents us with uh, a challenge in terms of applying the precautionary principle. Uh, should we be uh, overly uh, conservative or should we uh, be a little bit more relaxed and wait for these uh, problems to happen? There is some concern that because there is a reproductive endpoint in selenium toxicosis, that selenium toxicology, uh, selenium impacted environments can rapidly have uh, a, an impact at the population level, at the ecosystem level, uh, and uh, that uh, it has been characterized as a ticking time bomb, by, uh, unfortunately, by uh, one scientist in the field. Uh, I personally don't think it's a ticking time bomb, but I do think that selenium is something that requires a tremendous amount of uh, concern and oversight and mitigation and site-specific response. The receptors uh, that we find uh, in the natural world, um, selenium is not usually essential for plants, but it is uh, to animals, but plant life can accumulate because it does substitute for sulfur in biogeochemical systems. Um, it can be incorporated into amino acids, and therefore, as of selenoamino acids, it can form into selenoproteins. We've observed selenoproteins uh, uh, of importance in humans uh, and in animal models. Um, but uh, these selenoproteins, uh, when you get high enough concentrations of certain types, there can be an interference or interruption of basic biochemical processes, and this can be the basis of plant and animal toxicity. We can also have a mechanism of toxicity. Again, that's a more of acute, I mean, I'm sorry, a chronic uh, presentation of toxicosis. Uh, we can also have acute toxicosis where selenium, especially as a reduced substrate or as a, a form that can impact, for example, oxygen transport uh, in cells because it binds uh, with, uh, for example, uh, uh, various uh, uh, enzyme systems or oxygen carriers. Uh, we can have acute toxicosis as well. We observed uh, in this country in the 1930s uh, selenium levels uh, uh, in plants uh, that were high and started impacting uh, grazing and uh, it was responsible, identified as being responsible in the deaths of sheep and cattle, especially in the western United States. Um, some of these uh, were actually uh, associated with a condition called uh, alkali disease. Alkali disease is a bit of a misnomer, and the whole syndrome associated with alkali disease uh, may actually not have much to do with selenium at all, uh, other than the fact that people in the 1930s thought that it was a selenium presentation. Uh, we do observe food chain bioconcentration, uh, but again, this is almost to be expected. This is not a bioconcentration like in the case of PCBs or perhaps mercury, uh, where there is no biological role for that chemical. There is a biological role for selenium, and so I am a strong advocate that the use of the term bioconcentration is actually a misnomer when it comes to selenium. Uh, although we can observe it, uh, we can use it, uh, perhaps uh, uh, biomagnification and bioconcentration uh, is a misnomer because we would probably rather reserve that terminology for things that don't have a biological role. Organisms, aerobes, will naturally and normally bioconcentrate selenium from their food system as a mechanism of survival. Now, in normal plants, if we grow them in the presence of selenium, 
Uh, there is no separation of selenium from sulfur in terms of the biosynthesis of amino acids such as selenomethionine or selenocysteine. Here's the selenium residue and it would substitute for the sulfur residue in methionine and in cysteine, here's the selenium residue that would substitute at the same point for the sulfur residue in cysteine. And so we have a biosynthesis of these two primary selenoamino acids. You can have a four-step process in terms of a plant, and that's incorporation of protein. These selenium-selenium bridges in terms of the tertiary structure of the uh, proteins, folded proteins, are less stable than sulfur-sulfur uh, bridges and therefore these enzymes uh, in various systems in the plant lose activity and they lead eventually to death of the plant. Now there are a classification of selenium adapted plants. Uh, they can be uh, referred to as facultative accumulators or hyperaccumulators. Uh, these are plants uh, that do quite well in seleniferous environments. Uh, one of the ways they manage this is they have separate pathways for the production of uh, selenium and sulfur-bearing amino acids. And so there's two-channel system, and so here you see the normal, typical sulfur-bearing methionine and cysteine here, so there's a normal protein synthesis. But these selenium-adapted plants actually have the ability to incorporate selenium into non-protein amino acid analogs. And so what you will see is selenomethyl selenocysteine formation, selenohomocysteine uh, formation as well. And because these are non-protein forming amino acids, there are no toxic side effects. What we do find uh, in these uh, selenium adapted plants is the ability to have this two systems and as well the potential for incorporation of selenium oxyanions into the plant tissue in the same way that sulfate will incorporate into plant tissue uh, as a part of the reservoir. Uh, these facultative accumulators and these hyperaccumulators uh, can produce concentrations in plant matter uh, that exceed a thousand parts per million, a thousand milligrams per kilogram. Uh, in and of itself, not necessarily a toxic dose, but a very high dose and it can lead to acute and chronic toxicosis depending upon the variability of the forage in the area that animals are grazing. Let's look at some of the case studies that have yielded uh, our current regulatory response to selenium ecotoxicology. Uh, one of the older case studies uh, was from Bellews Lake in uh, North Carolina. Uh, it's in the central part, uh, north central part. Uh, this is a man-made reservoir uh, Bellows Lake was. Uh, it was uh, created as a resource for a coal-fired power plant. Uh, it's a lentic system, uh, in meaning that there's not a lot of turnover of the water, so it's a ponded ecosystem. And what we know about selenium now suggests that these sorts of ecosystems present a more worst-case scenario in terms of selenium impacts to uh, resident uh, uh, animal life. The initial filling was in 1970 and the plant came online in 1974, but because this was a natural resource, it was water that was impounded, there was a certain amount of biological monitoring that was uh, being done. Uh, remember that in 1970 and 1974, we, EPA just came online. A lot of science uh, was still in developing in terms of environmental impacts of many activities, although there was quite a bit of monitoring. 
Now this uh, cooling pond, this lake, uh, was actually uh, about 20% recirculated per day, so there were temperature effects. And as well, there was uh, a tremendous amount of outfall of contaminants from the fly ash settling basin. Uh, it was discharged uh, at a rate of about 150 to 200 micrograms per liter total selenium from the fly ash uh, ponds. Uh, the lake uh, rapidly increased in terms of concentration up to about 10 parts per billion, 10 micrograms per liter. And because of normal natural sedimentation processes and bioaccumulation of the plant life, the ecosystem became uh, uh, selectively impacted not only by uh, selenium but by other heavy metals and contaminants associated with a coal-fired power plant. In terms of the uh, observations of this industrial impacted water, we found uh, uh, in published work, uh, and this is a graphic, this is the year from uh, 1973, and so the, before they really sort of turned it on into the late 80s, uh, this was the parts per million in selenium, and these are in uh, not only water, but in the sediment, in the benthos, and up into the fish. Uh, you can see that there is a dose response in terms of background and then impact as a coal-fired power plant was turned on, selenium was released into this, and uh, achieving some sort of steady-state concentration. Um, in terms of the fish that were resident in this particular water body, there were elevated rates of uh, terata. Uh, about 10 to 70 percent. Uh, sometimes these have to do with formation of uh, soft tissues uh, and also in these invertebrates, uh, crooked backs uh, and various other abnormalities and birth defect rates. Some reaches uh, with uh, less than five micrograms uh, per liter uh, had normal fish and so there was an apparent uh, dose response in this. It was a highly researched case in terms of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and this particular case was one of the prime drivers to lower the chronic aquatic biota criterion from 35 parts per billion or 35 micrograms per liter to its current level at 5 micrograms per liter. Uh, in terms of uh, regulatory science approaches right now, uh, there are some concerns in terms of natural background concentrations. There are very, very vocal debates in the literature and in public meetings associated with selenium regulatory science. Uh, there are proposals being con compared and contrasted right now in terms of lowering this water concentration. Uh, the uh, prime uh, regulatory science uh, approach that is under consideration right now is to actually start monitoring fish tissue concentrations. Uh, there are some selective challenges there in terms of the species of fish uh, and what the concentration is in those fish and whether it should be different for cold water fish and warm water fish. Uh, and as well, uh, some concerns that if it starts appearing in the fish, it's probably too late for that population. And so there is a very dramatic and vocal uh, discussion in regulatory science concerning the best way to manage uh, the potential for environmental toxicology of selenium in aquatic ecosystems. Another case study that gave us uh, some environmental history in selenium was the Kesterson National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, this is in the California Central Valley. Um, I can bracket this uh, by telling you that this was uh, supposed to be a good thing. Uh, this is uh, some uh, good-intentioned individuals that saw agricultural drainage water as a potential resource uh, to start building and developing uh, a wildlife refuge. 
Again, I introduced that the California Central Valley is an ancient marine basin, and so it has uh, highly saline soils in the water that is used. The water uh, that was drained after irrigating fields is actually collected, and this is a way to manage uh, the uh, salinity of the soils. Uh, it's collected by a series of tile drains throughout uh, all of the Central Valley. Uh, it's channeled through sloughs into holding ponds, and historically it has been uh, discharged in primarily to the San Joaquin River, which empties into the San Francisco Bay. Uh, in the 1970s, late 1970s and the early 80s, uh, water was uh, developed into a national wildlife refuge uh, in the Central Valley area uh, in Kesterson. Uh, it was a problem in terms of the development of California that this important part of what's referred to as the Pacific Flyway. Uh, for those of you that understand and know uh, U.S. bird ecology, you'll note that the Pacific Flyway is on the western coast of the United States. Uh, it's the migratory pathway from Canada to the nesting grounds in uh, California primarily. Unfortunately, because of development in California over the past 100 years, about 95% or more of the natural wetlands in California have been developed um, and they've been disappeared. Swamps have been drained, waterways have been drained in terms of development of uh, agricultural, industrial, and residential properties. So the idea of using this wastewater to develop a wildlife refuge was in uh, a well-intentioned uh, sort of development. The people that were doing this recognized that there are pesticides used in California agriculture. There is a potential for salinity impacts and contamination impacts. And so even though they were using this water, they developed a monitoring uh, process to make sure that it wasn't doing any harm. Uh, there was, in the mid-1980s, an observation by Fish and Wildlife uh, Service biologists of reproductive failure in aquatic birds and ducks. Uh, these were fairly dramatic uh, impacts. Uh, in this Kesterson area, they deduced that selenium was leaching from these agricultural soils and then depositing in the drainage uh, impoundments uh, that were used in this wildlife refuge. There was an observation of food chain bioaccumulation, so there was an increase in concentration from water to sediments to aquatic plants to insects to fish uh, and also then in birds and ducks the highest on the trophic chain and therefore the potential highest potential for reproductive end effects. The observation of teratogenesis in aquatic uh, birds and ducks uh, at this point in time, again in the late 80s, caused a, a great public outcry. Uh, it was a series of articles uh, typically uh, by local newspapers such as the Sacramento Bee published a serial called The Poisoning of the West which uh, I think uh, uh, inflated selenium in terms of its potential ecotoxicology and said pretty much uh, anything grown on, s on lands uh, near selenium, uh, which is the predominant uh, vegetable basket for the U.S., uh, might have uh, some role in potential human health uh, impacts as well. The Kesterson observations in terms of teratogenesis uh, uh, were significant. Uh, 
there weren't a lot of observations. I believe uh, the fish and wildlife folks uh, did see a decline in terms of overall reproductive success in the observation of about 80 terata. Um, remembering uh, in terms of balancing this that there are hundreds of thousands of birds in, in typical areas like this. However, the observed terata and the cause effect between selenium is fairly well established. Uh, this is a normal stilt grebe 313 here uh, in terms of uh, its body conformation. Uh, what you can see here in this terata is uh, significant soft tissue uh, reproductive problems. Uh, it's hydrocephalic. Uh, there's a beak deformation and a lot of soft tissue uh, formation uh, associated with development of some of the soft tissue structures in this particular uh, stilt embryo. Uh, this is a coot uh, in terms of uh, observations because uh, selenium uh, can impact uh, hair uh, and development uh, and protein synthesis uh, in uh, 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 keratinin. Uh, there can be impacts, and you can see that this particular coot uh, is losing its feathers. It's balding uh, as, as a way to describe it. Uh, this was uh, a comparative field uh, uh, analysis of uh, two coots. Uh, this is from a control area called Upper Volta that was not impacted by selenium drainage. You can see that the breast muscle is fairly well developed. It's a healthy animal. Uh, here, this particular coot is uh, significantly uh, emaciated, uh, not a lot of breast muscle on it. Uh, it's obviously uh, suffering in terms of uh, its potential uh, exposure to selenium, plus the other uh, toxicants that uh, were presented in the National Wildlife Refuge uh, water that had been used as agricultural drainage water. This is a birth defect on a mallard uh, from Kesterson. Uh, this is uh, up close so you can see uh, complete uh, uh, removal of the lower beak. Uh, these animals don't survive. Uh, teratogenesis does occur in nature. Um, it's normal as a part of the background, especially in high population instances. So there is a background statistic. In this particular case, uh, the rates of teratogenesis were accelerated over background. Another case study uh, approach in terms of selenium is an impact from mining activity, and we have some here in the Western Phosphate Resource Area. It's highlighted in this USGS relief map. Um, the red that you see in here is uh, phosphate, rock phosphate uh, uh, deposits. Uh, the rock phosphate deposits give us the phosphorus we use in, in fertilizer. It gives us the pop in soda pop. Uh, next time you have a soft drink, uh, look at the back of a can and you'll see the ingredient phosphoric acid. Phosphoric acid in your soda drinks comes from the western phosphate resource area. In Idaho, phosphate mining has occurred uh, since the early part of the 1900s, about 1920, 1930. There's been about 80 years of, of uh, phosphate mining at some level or another. It's always been considered a relatively clean strip mining operation, and this is primarily because it is not associated with acid mine drainage. Uh, acid mine drainage we'll talk about in, in uh, uh, further case studies in terms of uh, examples of impacts in the environment, but there are no real heavy metal releases from phosphate mining. There is a disturbance of the surface uh, in terms of um, 
uh, lack of rep reclamation uh, prior to uh, the 1970s and 1980s when uh, reclamation was not required. And so there was a tremendous scarring on the land. But you can actually see in this uh, widescreen photograph I took of uh, some of the uh, uh, cemetery depositions here. These uh, uh, cemetery features here are part of the phosphoria ore uh, that is selectively mined. Uh, you can also see that some attempt in, in early reclamation has occurred here in terms of revegetation, reforestation, uh, the bonding and the environmental impact mitigation of phosphate mining has changed significantly over the last uh, few decades, and so it's uh, significantly changed in terms of how we manage these uh, resources. One of the problems associated with this deposit is that uh, some of the waste rock, uh, which contains chert, which is an aluminosilicate, uh, uh, and then limestone and siltstone shale, uh, actually can contain fairly high concentration inclusions of selenium. Uh, in this particular case, we have uh, a pyrite micrograin uh, here. Pyrite uh, micrograins Framboidal pyrite uh, can contain 1 to 6 percent, 0.1 to 6 percent selenium by weight. And so these little golf balls, and this is uh, only a few microns uh, 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 wide, actually uh, can be uh, highly concentrated, highly enriched in selenium from bio, bio and microbial processes. Uh, there can also be other sorts of uh, selenium or pyrite type formations. Pyrite is an iron sulfide. The iron can also uh, collect uh, selenides in terms of these mixed uh, uh, selenium-sulfur mineral formations. It was first uh, observed in 1996 uh, in livestock near the area. Uh, this particular horse's name uh, was Pedro. Um, you can see that there's a potential for impact on lands that were uh, on animals that were uh, grazing in nearby lands, especially after selenium was mobilized off of the, uh, these mine sites. Um, you can see, if nothing else, that Pedro is not a very happy horse, but it has uh, alopecia, or uh, missing hair, uh, a, a symptom of chronic selenosis. Uh, selenosis also uh, starts impacting uh, the development of, uh, of hooves uh, in humans. It's fingernails and hair. Uh, in terms of selenium toxicosis, uh, here's uh, fresh coronet, uh, the uh, fingernail cuticle, if you will, on a horse. Uh, you can see that, in fact, uh, there has been a tremendous uh, malformation of the hoof. Uh, there's, a, in this particular case, a significant amount of inf infection and uh, discomfort uh, because uh, this is a heavy animal that uh, relies on its hooves in terms of uh, locomotion. Uh, typically, animals that have chronic selenosis uh, don't necessarily die of it, but if they're livestock, uh, because of the discomfort associated with it, they're put down, uh, euthanized. Some of the mining challenges uh, that occur, um, this is a choice we have to take, and this is a classic risk versus benefit scenario in terms of public process, protection of the environment, and also the challenges that we have in an industrialized society of producing things like the pop and soda pop. Uh, how do we do uh, phosphate uh, rock, phosphate ore uh, mining without releasing selenium in the, into the environment? How do we control that release? How do we do animal management? How do we 
control at historical sites uh, that have long been mined uh, decades earlier by people that aren't around anymore, uh, companies that aren't around anymore. How do we mitigate, uh, minimize the impact of the environment? And how do we monitor uh, current mining opportunities, current mining operations, uh, mitigating impact, minimizing impact in terms of all of the uh, surrounding contiguous ecosystem? These are part of the challenges that occur in a modern industrialized society. Uh, the concept of just shutting down the one resource that we have in the West, but one of two resources we have in the United States for phosphate rock uh, may or may not be uh, what you view as being possible or a, a response to this. Uh, there are challenges in terms of uh, we export our problems to other countries if we import a resource such as fertilizer. Uh, and there are as well food security issues in terms of uh, U.S. agriculture. It's a very complex uh, uh, situation. Uh, magnified by a conundrum, magnified perhaps by the disagreement among scientists, and uh, the balancing of environmental impact and uh, economic uh, development. Uh, this is a current and ongoing challenge. I'm going to switch uh, at this point in time to uh, uh, do the second part uh, of the case studies in this lecture. And for this, we're going to talk about arsenic in drinking water. And so this is a human-based focus. Uh, we'll see some situations here in terms of the development of regulatory science to protect human health. But we'll also do a global uh, analysis of a current situation in Bangladesh. In terms of the natural occurrence of arsenic, it comes to us again from rock, and so especially iron ores and magmatic sulfides. Uh, we find it in sediments and sulf, uh, soils and water from normal weathering and dissolution. Uh, arsenic in solution occurs as arsenic-5 and arsenic-3. These oxidation states have uh, different sort of chemical properties in the same way that the oxidation states of uh, selenium had different properties. Uh, there is also different sort of toxicological endpoints that we will review. In terms of anthropogenic sources in soil and water, the sources can include uh, various pesticides and wood preservatives. We've introduced that lead arsenate was a popular insecticide uh, that was used in the 19, up until the 1950s and I believe 60s and maybe even 70s. Uh, it still is used in uh, chicken production and various animal uh, livestock operations. Some anthropogenic activities uh, can speed dissolution uh, from the parent rock and because of um, the potential for precipitation and mobilization, uh, this is a potential release uh, point in terms of arsenic in the surface ecosystem. In terms of acute toxicity, arsenic is uh, one of your classic poisons, arsenic and old lace, uh, in terms of the old movie representations uh, of arsenicosis. Uh, about 50 to 300 milligrams of inorganic arsenic uh, can be fatal uh, to humans. It has GI injuries, uh, kidney damage, there can be circulatory collapse and respiratory failure. This is not a comfortable way to go uh, in terms of poisons of choice. Um, in terms of industrial or occupational exposures, uh, there's potential in terms of mining and agriculture. In environmental exposures, we see uh, the potential in terms of our drinking water, our diet. Uh, there is a large amount of arsenic uh, that is available in various seafoods, although the chemical form of that arsenic, arsenobetaine, is a non-toxic form. 
Uh, in treated wood, uh, copper arsenate is one chemical compound that is used uh, to uh, uh, delay uh, the microbial degradation or the fungal degradation of wood. And so arsenicals have been used in wood post treatment uh, for decades. Um, in fact, uh, up until recently, uh, in the past decade or so, uh, even some wood materials that were used in children's playgrounds were treated with this arsenic uh, compound. Uh, in managing or handling old wood, be advised that quite often it can be uh, arsenic-treated wood and it can be a source of potential toxicosis for carpenters that are working with it, uh, as well as uh, burning these types of uh, wood materials and inhaling the arsenic. There's also a chemical compound, Paris Green. Uh, Paris Green was a, um, a pigment, a nice green pigment. Uh, in classic uh, uh, painting, uh, many of the greens that you see are arsenic-based. Uh, if you look at uh, the uh, classic representation of old painters that used to use uh, spit and put their uh, uh, paintbrushes in their mouth to moisten it before uh, 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 painting, uh, this was a uh, one way of uh, arsenic toxicosis. Another way of arsenic toxicosis that occurs uh, in many historical uh, uh, scenarios is the microbial or fungal volatilization of arsenic uh, uh, compounds from pigments that occurred in early wallpapers and household treatments in terms of color. Uh, the combination of poorly heated, wet, damp environments uh, that uh, quite often are more associated with the wealthier people that could afford wallpapers uh, did have the potential to produce uh, volatile species in enclosed environments like your bedroom and the potential presentation of arsenicosis. There's been several uh, historical figures such as Napoleon that have been tried to link in terms of their demise to arsenicosis typically by these sorts of mechanisms. There are some intentional exposures that we do have and we still do have in our medicine chest several arsenical drugs. These arsenical drugs are typically treatments for protozoal infections. Uh, it's killed the pathogen and not the host uh, time in terms of some of these uh, very destructive protozoal infestations. Uh, we also have a potential for exposure when arsenicals, such as roxarsone, are used in poultry production. In terms of the chronic health effects, arsenic uh, can build up in tissues. This is a uh, a picture of uh, Bangladeshi. Uh, we'll talk about this case study here in a moment, but this is a classic uh, Blackfoot uh, disease syndrome. It's a keratosis of the palms and the, and the uh, of the hands and the feet, a thickening of the skin, uh, uh, and disruption of uh, uh, blood flow, uh, causing a gangrenous or Blackfoot formation. Uh, we can find uh, it building up in certain types of tissues, such as skin and hair. Uh, we can find a melanosis or a darkening of the skin, keratosis, unusual pigmentation in the earliest stages. Uh, there can be lesions and vascular damage, uh, vascular system damage. And then finally, in terms of presentation of toxicosis, uh, various types of cancer, including skin, lung cancers, uh, bladder cancer being the most uh, serious concern, uh, lymph glands, kidney, prostate, and liver cancers have all been related or linked in some way to arsenicosis. There's also some evidence for damage to the CNS or central nervous system. 
It's a common uh, drinking water contaminant. Uh, we find it uh, in various parts of the United States, in the East Coast and in the West. Uh, it's more a problem in some of the saline environments of the U.S. West, and uh, we've had some concern uh, here locally, even in our state and in the Northwest. Uh, in terms of international impacts, we have found drinking water contamination in Taiwan, Chile, Mexico, Argentina, uh, Bangladesh, and India as being kind of some of the, the, the hot spots associated with our, the observation of our synecosis from drinking water. The World Health Organization has a drinking water standard of 10 micrograms per liter. WHO is not a regulatory organization, it's a health organization, and so it presents these standards based on risk assessments. Uh, and then it puts these out as standards so that countries can then uh, develop the regulatory infrastructure to monitor and treat the drinking water supplies to these safe levels. Uh, there are many countries, however, uh, especially the less industrialized, that maintain a 50 microgram per liter drinking water standard. Now, when we talk about drinking water, and especially regulated drinking waters in the U.S. and otherwise, these typically are associated with community water resources. So if you have your own well, uh, you are pretty much off the grid, if you will, in terms of managed or monitored water resources. Uh, so more rural communities uh, and, in fact, uh, rural uh, houses that are on their own wells uh, quite often don't have any monitoring, and so there is no compliance, uh, if you will. Uh, the U.S. standard uh, uh, until the year 2001 was 50 micrograms per deciliter. I'm sorry, 50 micrograms per liter, 50 parts per billion. Uh, in 2001, and there was some politics associated with this, uh, this was one of the last pieces of legislation signed by the Clinton administration in early 2001 as former President Clinton was stepping out of office. This was going to have a dramatic impact. Uh, by this point in time, most industrial countries had changed to 10 micrograms per liter. Uh, the U.S. had not. We still had a 50 part per billion standard. Uh, the Bush administration did have some concerns with a late, uh, even though this had been researched for four years, with a change of such a dramatic uh, impact. And throughout most of 2001, this uh, regulation was stayed by executive order. Uh, the Bush administration became convinced by the fall of 2001 that, in fact, the predominant scientific data was supportive of a change to 10 parts per billion. And then the U.S. EPA established a compliance schedule where communities uh, that were under the U.S. Safe Drinking Water Act would have to comply by the year 2006. Most have, but there have been waivers in terms of compliance because of the uh, challenges in terms of coming up with the costly treatment systems associated with uh, water treatment for arsenic residues. Uh, in the South America and Central America, including Mexico, uh, there have been uh, several health impacts and incidents associated uh, with arsenic. Uh, predominantly uh, in terms of high concentrations, some rural communities in Chile where the drinking water was uh, uh, at one part per million or more. This is uh, levels of uh, significance. Uh, most of the arsenic and the observation of arsenicosis by public health authorities in these countries, even in rural areas, has been upgraded and treatment has been put to play uh, in most areas and especially in community water resources. 
Again, I said uh, that in the U.S., uh, historically, uh, even though arsenic was a known human carcinogen, it's a Class A carcinogen, uh, there is a 1 to 2 in 1,000 risk uh, of, uh, and possibly a 1 in 100 risk at the 15 microgram per drinking water levels. Uh, it was listed uh, before 1987, but it never had a best available technology associated with drinking water treatment. And so we had an arsenic maximum contaminant level, MCL, which is a drinking water, Safe Drinking Water Act uh, regulatory standard of 50 micrograms per liter. The new MCL that came in on the 22nd of January uh, was 10 micrograms per liter. This was the same level in terms of recent history that was uh, uh, specified by the World Health Organization. Uh, one of the concerns of not going below this is because we have food resources, especially seafood, that become a predominant source of arsenic. It's not a drinking water in terms of the mass balance of exposure. Uh, in this legislation, the best available technologies were named, and as I said, the Bush administration suspended this in March and then finally promulgated the new rule in October 2001 after an internal review. In terms of arsenic in the United States, this is a USGS map. Um, the colors in terms of highest concentration arsenic greater than 50 in uh, water resources is in red, orange 10 to 50, and then you get into the green and blues. Uh, what you can see by looking at this uh, graphic, uh, even if you don't have a, a good resolution on your monitors, is that there is a large amount of concern in terms of contamination of water supplies in the western United States. And so this has uh, been part of the problem is the geographical location. However, we do have hotspots across the nation in terms of tr systems that uh, were between uh, 10 and 50 uh, micrograms per liter. In terms of the U.S. public water systems, in 2001, when they did an analysis, uh, the number of small public water systems that exceeded the 10 micrograms per liter uh, was uh, 1,542. Large systems, like uh, fairly large urban areas, 10,000 or more population, I'm sorry, 1,000 or more population, uh, numbered 500. In terms of ones that exceeded the 50, the WHO guideline, there were 58 large public water systems and 200 small uh, public water systems. And so these uh, uh, were significant in terms of the percentage um, at the lower levels, uh, relatively insignificant, but in terms of the overall number and the number of consumers, uh, water consumers that were being impacted was in fact significant. I'm going to switch over to global impact uh, because uh, we have kind of come a long way in the United States in terms of changing over how we manage arsenic in municipal drinking water. What we're going to do next is talk about uh, an arsenic in drinking water public health emergency that has uh, pretty much developed over the past uh, couple decades uh, in Bangladesh. Uh, to give you kind of a geographical orientation, here we have the Bay of Bengal separating India and Myanmar. Uh, up here we have Nepal and uh, the Tibetan range, and this is the delta in terms of the drainage of the Tibetan range. And so with all of these mountains up here, we talked about precipitation and normal uh, mineral weathering as being one of the resources for exposing and mobilizing uh, contamination. But this uh, sedimentary basin here, uh, as it turns out, uh, has uh, a lot of sedimentary arsenic in it. 
the way it goes in terms of where we're at uh, in, in recent history, to give you an idea and a sense of what has happened, uh, this is the World Bank. This is a quote, if you don't mind me reading here, a couple of quotes. Uh, World Bank analysis of the scope of the Bangladesh problem and arsenic in their drinking water. Uh, with more than an estimated 20 million of its 126 million people assumed to be drinking contaminated water and another 70 million potentially at risk, Bangladesh is facing what has been described as perhaps the largest mass poisoning in history. Uh, another analysis uh, by a professor at Harvard University, a professor that did actually, for most of his career, health physics risk assessment uh, associated with radionuclides. In the latter part of his career, decided to take up the sword, so to speak, of publicizing uh, the health impacts and the world global challenges in terms of mitigating uh, the arsenicosis of this population. Um, his quote is, Bangladesh makes the Chernobyl disaster look like a Sunday school picnic. And so these are not people that are media types. These are people who we have careful, close analysis, experts in the field, who are highly concerned about the scope of the Bangladeshi problem. The history of the Bangladesh problem is significant because there was a human hand in it. Whenever it's just nature taking uh, her revenge on us, uh, we have a little bit of different approach. But when humans' hands are in it, uh, especially uh, well-intentioned human hands, it's uh, particularly difficult uh, to, to uh, understand. Uh, this is a quote by a uh, uh, gentleman at the United Nations uh, Environmental UNESCO um, uh, program, uh, United Nations Children Fund. The sorry beggar's belief in the 1970 international agencies headed by UNICEF began pumping millions of dollars of aid money into Bangladesh for tube wells to provide for clean drinking water. Uh, they had been using surface water uh, and uh, contaminated surface water, if you will, and there was a tremendous level of infant mortality associated with that and as well disease. The direct result has been the biggest outbreak of mass poisoning in history. Up to half of the country's tube wells, now estimated to number 10 million, are poisoned. Tens, perhaps hundreds of thousands will die. So this is a pretty significant impact uh, in terms of what happened when an aid agency and the associated uh, sub-agencies, like the British Geological Survey, went in and started a program to change local practice from contaminated, microbially contaminated drinking water from surface waters of rivers and streams to wells, these pump-handled wells, tube wells, uh, that were sunk to uh, provide a non-contaminated water resource. Um, in the early 1970s, most of uh, Bangladesh's rural population got its drinking water from various surface ponds, and about a quarter of a million children each year died from waterborne illness. And so this was a well-intentioned chain. The provision of these two-bell waters for 97% of the world population was credited, in fact, with bringing down the high incidence of these uh, diarrheal uh, diseases, these microbial diseases, and contributed also to having the infant mortality rate. And so paradoxically, the same wells that saved so many lives now actually presented a chemical toxicology uh, threat in terms of the public health of the Bangladeshis. 
give you an idea of the arsenic water contaminations uh, in Bangladesh. If you look at this on a district by district basis, red being the highest concentration, uh, pinks uh, and oranges uh, in terms of unacceptable. And then as you get down into the greens, uh, those are uh, acceptable levels of uh, water concentration. You can see that uh, in this central district, and as we approach the West Bengal area, which is also contaminated uh, in India, uh, you have some concentrations that approach or exceed one part per million. Again, recall that uh, 0.05 parts per million or 50 parts per billion is the WHO old value in terms of uh, maximum concentration for the protection of human health. So in terms of the development of public health consequences, uh, citizens, when following this uh, tube, water, uh, tube oil water changeover, started developing the classic Blackfoot disease associated with arsenicosis and chronic uh, arsenic toxicology. Um, this you can see that uh, there are lesions, uh, lesions that uh, because of uh, vascular changes and because of immune changes can develop into uh, cancer lesions. Uh, this is uh, uh, an observation of a tumor, skin cell tumor on an individual's hand, but you can also see the carrot uh, keratinizing of the uh, skin, uh, the spotting of the skin uh, associated with the progression of this disease as well. In this uh, slide, uh, you can see a dramatic impact of uh, uh, the uh, thickening of the skin, the keratoses uh, that appear uh, in, again, the arsenic uh, development of arsenic lesions in an extreme case. Uh, this is the keratosis, the melanosis, the changing of the color uh, of uh, skin and the development of lesions. Uh, and again, this is a classic symptom of arsenic toxicosis, arsenicosis. This is an early stage. Uh, it's hard to see in this slide uh, with the coloring and probably on your monitor, so I'll describe it. You can see a little bit of a development on the uh, arms of this individual, but this is a classic uh, arsenic uh, uh, lesion in terms of a melanosis or spotting. Uh, it's been described as uh, how it looks when uh, rain starts falling on a dry, dusty road. There's a spottiness that develops a darker uh, spot where the raindrop is hit. Uh, the manifestation of these dark spots on the chest and arms of this child uh, uh, demonstrate uh, chronic exposure to high arsenic uh, in drinking water. These again are some arsenic lesions, the keratoses on, on the feet uh, in this particular case is developed into a cancer tumor. Next slide shows another uh, unfortunate uh, individual uh, that has developed uh, gangrene as well as tumors uh, on, on the leg and uh, uh, go all the way up the, this particular individual's leg. It's important in these kind of cases, uh, not for us, especially in the West, uh, to develop uh, the feigned grief of the sleeping village uh, metaphor in terms of our response to this. It's important that we put a face on this. Uh, this is a World Bank photo of uh, Pinjira Begum and her daughter. Uh, this was a portrait uh, of them at a better time uh, before they both died of arsenic-related causes. In terms of the cultural and social factors, how we've dealt with this, there has been an international response. There's obviously natural resources damage. Uh, this is a situation that with good science uh, and good development should have never happened. There are major questions on why these international development agencies did not 
have the wherewithal to analyze the local water to figure out not only that the provision of water uh, from these two wells was going to increase uh, the uh, uh, contamination uh, uh, or the uh, pre prevention of disease from contaminated surface water, but uh, why they didn't look at the chemical background uh, of uh, the water in the development of what amounted to a multi-million dollar project uh, is, uh, in the words of the UNESCO official, it beggars belief. The social consequences, uh, and this is a World Bank analysis of the situation, the social consequences of the arsenic crisis are far-reaching and tragic because of illiteracy and lack of information. Many confuse the skin lesions caused by arsenicosis with leprosy, and so there's a public health education requirement. The most hard-hit villages where health problems have gripped a large population are treated like isolated leper colonies within the community. Arsenic-affected people are barred from social activities uh, and often face rejection even by immediate family members. Uh, women are unable to get married and wives have been abandoned by their husband because of the presentation of arsenic-related clinical signs and symptoms. Children with symptoms are not sent to school in an effort to hide the problem. And so there are these dramatic culture and social uh, impacts as well as the public health impacts. How the Bangladeshi government and the international aid organizations have been responding to this, uh, part of it is by identifying contaminated tube wells. Uh, this has been by field test kits, by aid organizations and agencies uh, coming into this. There have been some concerns because obviously if you're a village or a community that has one source of water and you are identified as having contaminated water, that impacts the value of real estate, the value of your commodities, and the overall public health. And so there's another dynamic to this about uh, some of the social uh, pressures on the local scientists and public health officers that are trying to manage as best possible this very devastating situation. There have been some very appropriate technologies applied to identifying uh, clean water from dirty water. One of these is to paint the wellhead green for safe water, red for unsafe drinking water. There's also been some appropriate technology applied to uh, remove arsenic. Uh, several international uh, aid organizations and uh, many scientists have been involved in trying to develop rural appropriate technologies to remove uh, arsenic from uh, drinking water. Some of these have uh, involved using, uh, for example, uh, rusty iron uh, materials, uh, brick, sand, uh, various types of filtration aids to try to scrub out the majority of the arsenic. Uh, this probably isn't, isn't necessarily the best approach, but it, in this particular society may be the only and appropriate approach. Some of these home water treatments uh, have been generally accepted. Uh, there is, has been, in some cases, provision for uh, appropriate technology and community resources to do community-based uh, water treatment as well. Collection of harvesting of rainwater uh, is one approach, uh, again, appropriate technology. Here you see a tent uh, that, uh, again, harvests rainwater into a barrel. In terms of some of the follow-up, in terms of government agency control mesh measures, uh, we haven't mitigated this in terms of our approach. Uh, we're still monitoring this. Uh, uh, part of the problem has to do with the impact and the carcinogenicity of some species of arsenic-3 uh, uh, and the long-term impacts. Uh, 
Uh, in terms of the approaches, the immediate detection of our synecosis patients uh, and the treatment uh, in terms of getting them away from water and treating uh, the uh, potential uh, uh, loss of, uh, of health. Uh, the finding of uh, alternate water resources for safe drinking water resource, uh, safe drinking water is uh, a very important part, uh, source reduction if you will. Uh, finding various reasons uh, for the arsenic contamination in the soil water and how to best manage that. Uh, there have been a lot of uh, geochemical studies done in terms of what is the relationship between oxygen, between iron, uh, between pumping, infiltration of agricultural waters uh, that might uh, enhance the release of arsenic from uh, its sequestered sites in the subsurface. The more we know about the geochemistry and biogeochemistry of arsenic in this environment, the more we can better design uh, various types of uh, water uh, uh, processes, drinking water processes, to provide safer drinking water. There's been some health education campaigns uh, encouraging people to avoid arsenic-contaminated drinking water in wells, again, the red well versus green well painting. And then there has been a significant amount of training for health personnel. Well, that closes up uh, our uh, lecture, uh, this case study lecture on uh, both uh, uh, selenium and arsenic, these, these uh, nonmetals uh, on the side of the periodic table that mimic uh, phosphorus and they mimic uh, uh, sulfur. Uh, this gives you kind of a full scope of, of you know, a focus, if you will, of uh, ecotoxicology, but also human health uh, and its impacts. Uh, for many students uh, that I've come across, they have never even heard of the uh, Bangladeshi arsenic crisis. Uh, given all the world's problems in terms of war, famine, disease, uh, um, perhaps it may not be uh, on the top of uh, every newspaper every day, but it is something that is an ongoing concern, and it's a, perhaps a tragedy of uh, dramatic proportions in terms of uh, some of the other tragedies that occur in our global uh, village. Next time, what we'll do is uh, try and go back uh, to nature. Uh, we'll look at uh, something I refer to as ecological biochemistry and start talking about how nature presents us with some incredibly toxic challenges, uh, chemical warfare on a species-to-species -species basis, the relationship between the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom, and us as being individuals 